Good morning. Uh, let me get myself situated here, as we say in Virginia. Um, my name is Peter Hartwig. That may sound vaguely familiar. Oh, no. Stop. Um, I am uh, Pete Hartwig's son, but neither you nor I believe that having a specific parent is really credentials to preach. Otherwise, my sisters would be up here. And I, um, no, I'm in, I just finished up my first year of seminary. I'm in an MDiv program. And for, okay, yeah. I also don't work out often. I'm not on a diet. You know, just, I, um, and so when I'm in town, I come here and I get to preach, which is awesome. I currently reside in Princeton, New Jersey, which is a two-street town with one big university and nothing to do, right? It's like New Jersey fun at New York prices. So, and we, uh, but when I come here, I get to kind of have this like, you, you come home, you know what I mean? So yesterday I went floating on the James with some of my best friends from high school, these people who know me almost too well, and I took a hard rapid and I swallowed a lot of water, so I'm right now fighting the storm inside. Let me tell you. So if I walk off stage at a given moment, you start praying for me, I'll be back there, there's a trash can. And, um, and then this morning, you know, I'm like home and I went upstairs and said, mom, should I shave for this morning? And the look on her face made me wonder what else people aren't telling me about myself on most days. So I feel very much home. Most of you uh, who maybe know me, having grown up here some, know that I'm a wildly unathletic human being. People who have never met me before, given the fact you're really getting the floor to ceiling here, can probably tell that. When I was in high school, I went to St. Anne's. We had to start doing sports. Ho! Oh, and I had three options in the fall of my freshman year, which were cross-country soccer and um, football. With the physique of Gumby, I wasn't going to play football. And with all the speed and forward motion of an elevator, I wasn't going to do cross-country either. So I was left to play soccer, which my father had played in college. And the day I was born, also born, were my father's dreams that I would be a soccer star. <laughs> so for years, my parents would buy me like soccer balls or encourage me to play. And it is difficult for me to overstate how disinterested I was. But now I have to do it for school. And so they're kind of like, maybe it's going to work now. And uh, I, I played a position that has only existed from September of 2008 to December of 2008 called Last Stand, which was a position created for somebody of my skill set and interests in case the real defense had been shot and the goalie was having a stroke. And if that was to happen, then the idea was I would somehow get the ball and keep a goal from happening. We were two jerseys short, and it was obvious that me and I think June Wan were going to use it the least, so I didn't get a jersey. And whenever I was going to go in, I had to wear somebody else's sweaty shirt and rock out there on the field and do a thing that I am not built to do. So we're playing Fork Union Military Academy, which doubles, oh no, it doubles as a military academy and a petting zoo. And uh, these kids are huge, right? So giant. Aha, they are men amongst boys, and I'm me, and we're out there playing. It's, I don't know, two-thirds of the way through the match, whatever they're called. And one of them, one of them manages, I go in, because um, it's a private school, so everybody has to play. 
So I go in, and one of the bison children outmaneuvered the real defense with the ball and keeps coming down the field towards me, which had never happened in rehearsal. And so as, they're, as he's coming, I'm starting to think I don't know what to do. So I ran up to him, which was both alarming to him and to me, and I kind of looked up at him as like, are you my mother, sort of? <laughs> and so we both start running back down the field towards the goal, and I'm kind of looking up at him, and he's looking down at me, and I'm looking at him. And then when I opened my eyes, we were in an intimate on-the-ground connection that I have never experienced before or since. And what I deduced was that some part of me had gone like, now, throw all of your inconsiderable 127 pounds at his legs, and that will stop the goal. Everybody on the field stopped moving because they thought I had an aneurysm, which was more likely than me by my own will and volition contributing to the general good of the team. And then me, um, I would say disoriented by my recent fall and glory, stood up and kicked the ball directly at the goal. And then the audience was like, ah, and they pulled me off the field. I sat there for the rest of the game. I do not remember if we won. But for the rest of the season, I would order Golden Mountain Beef from Taiwan Garden, and I would watch the game I was supposed to be playing from the bleachers, and no one ever mentioned it. <laughs> no one was like, aren't you supposed to be out there? They were all like, he's in the musical theater, right? <laughs> so, so for me, having that background and skill set, when somebody talks about rising up, I get a little trepidatious. I don't know how you are, but when coaches have tried to give me pump-up speeches, I've thought, you don't know my life. Like, don't, don't come up and hear me, right? When, when my dad says, we're going to do a sermon cities at City Church called Rise Up, I wonder if a couple people like me actually secretly have this kind of um, B-roll of all the times you've fallen down. And you think, if somebody had walked up to me in that moment and said, rise up, you would release a string of words you're not supposed to say in church. Right? Maybe when somebody stands up on stage and looks very put together and tells you to rise up, you maybe get a little angry or uncomfortable. Like you start thinking, if I could rise up, I would have risen up already. If I, I, I want to change the things I want to change, you telling me to change them, especially from up there, isn't all that useful. Like, I don't, don't tell me to rise up. If I, would, if I could rise up, I would have already risen up. Now, I know that the heart at City Church is the empowerment of God to do the things we want to do. To see God be the empowerment that makes the dreams of our hearts the work of our hands. But I wonder if you're sitting out there for the past couple weeks, there might be some of us or some parts of us that when we're told to rise up and we're challenged to hope and we're always secretly start remembering is that I'm a failure. I've always been a failure, and I feel like a failure. I think about when someone challenges me to rise up, I actually just start thinking about all the times like I've fallen down. And what's worse is you're not supposed to talk about those in church. I know. I'm a pastor's kid, right? I know all the things you're not supposed to say in church. I've never said them because I've spent all my time in church. And so now I'm realizing, as I'm getting a little older, that for a good amount of my life, I experienced church as being very much watched, but not at all seen, being asked to talk, but never really being heard, 
I know that I spent a lot of time swallowing things. I had nowhere to admit that something was wrong because if I admitted it at church, then I wouldn't look like a church person. I think that breaks God's heart. That church, which is supposed to be the place where broken people become whole, not where good people get to sing songs, but where dead people become alive, that we have nowhere to admit our deadness. And so I just wonder if maybe some of us or some parts of us when we've listened to a sermon series on Rise Up, have just felt like actually we've been stuck falling down. So that's those of us and those parts of us that I would like to talk to today. And so that it doesn't become millennial wallowing, why don't we turn to Scripture? You know? Um, if, if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip to Hebrews, the third chapter. So I thought to talk about things we're not supposed to talk about in church, I would preach on texts that no one wants to preach on, which are uh, the third chapter of Hebrews, and we'll eventually get there, but the 14th chapter of Numbers. Hebrews is a letter that has no written author. Nobody signs it, but they've sent it to the early church, assumedly at a point when the church is in some serious persecution. They're in turmoil. And this is their pastor, who for one or another reason can't be with them, and he wants to make sure that they don't lose the faith. So he has, possibly she, but probably he, has two basic tactics. One tactic is to remind them of how awesome Jesus is and how much he can do, and the other is to encourage them to run towards that Jesus. Two major themes in the book of Hebrews are the call to faith, and the sovereignty of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the competence of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the leadership of Jesus. It's a big Jesus letter. And so if you were to pick up, as we are now, the book of Hebrews, uh, I said chapter 3, but we're going to start just above this. Chapter 2, verse 16, it starts like this. For surely it's not angels that Jesus helps, but Abraham's descendants which is to say, people. For this reason, he, Jesus, had to become like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become our merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Chapter 3, therefore... Holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future, but Christ is faithful as the Son of God over the house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to the confidence and the hope in which we glory. So just take a breather, because we have more to go. But the basic idea is that Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is so much better than Moses because Jesus somehow prepared Moses. Moses is the house that Jesus built. So we keep reading. As the Holy Spirit says, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. 
That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. A little dark. What's going on? What's going on is that the author of Hebrews is bringing us to a pivotal downfall in the history of Israel. He set up Jesus as this new and greater Moses, and now he recalls this moment where Israel really botched it. For one or another reason, the author of Hebrews wants to bring our minds there. Now, I would feel bad about bringing all of our minds there if I thought that most weeks we didn't think about it at all. But if I'm betting most of us on our beds or on our coffee break or in the quiet of our own minds go back to the places of our failures with some regularity and we become a little anxious that somebody is going to find out. Worst of all, if Jesus found out, because then he might not want me back in here. Sometimes it can be hard to be in community when the tape that plays in your head is the reminder of your failure over and over and over again, but when the author of Hebrews wants to pastor us through it, he brings us to that place first. I know it's not fun, and if you'd like, you can leave now and never see me again, but I would at least like to follow the author of Hebrews into the place of Israel's failure before we start talking about how God has done something to change their situation. So stick a pinky in Hebrews 3 and flip over, if you will, to the 14th chapter of Numbers. I know you've probably read this recently, and it's one of your favorites, but just indulge me. The rebellion that the author of Hebrews is talking about is this reference to an event that happens in the 14th chapter of Numbers. The author of Hebrews, whoever he was, was not writing his letter in preparation for like a 33-minute long sermon. He was writing his letter in preparation for hours and hours of study. So I am just admitting that we are barely going to scratch the surface on this. And I am encouraging you to go back and have Numbers 14 in one hand and Hebrews 3 in the other and just let them play with each other because it really is remarkable. So I'm just going to have to skim it, and all, this, you know, all the college students who know how important it is to be thorough in this study are going to have to forgive me. Because if I had heard somebody preach this sermon when I was in college, it'd be like, he didn't even mention. Anyway, so this is how the 14th... So, so Israel has been brought out of Egypt miraculously by God. They've been rescued from the slavery and oppression of Pharaoh, and they've been walking through the wilderness for years. They've made a covenant with God, and God has constantly, like, covered their bases. They screw it up consistently, but God is always forgiving and always merciful. God is always there to make a way. It's been time and time again, and God has been leading them for years through the desert to prepare them for the promised land that he promised to Abraham. This is the big moment. It's called Canaan. They're at the edge of Canaan. They are ready to go. The whole Old Testament has been building to this point, and Moses sends some spies into the promised land to scope it out. Several of them come back, and they say, it's great in there. Food's wonderful. Infrastructure is solid. School system is great. The problem is it's inhabited by, like, giants. Like Fork Union Military Academy grads have somehow 
taken over Canaan, and we don't think we can win this game. And so, that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, which is a technical term for fetching, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we'll choose a leader and we'll go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were part of the spies, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is so good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he'll give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord. And don't be afraid of the people in the land because we will devour them. The Hebrew says they are our bread. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long are these people going to hate me? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I've performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. We'll get rid of them and we'll give you a new church. Moses said to the Lord, well, then the Egyptians would hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people. And that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, that you go before them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he had promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness, which is to say, if you do what you're threatening to do, you're going to make their fears come true. What they're telling you they're afraid of is precisely what you'll become if you do that. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, Moses says, just as you have declared, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. So in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them continually from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory in the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one has ever treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land. The Lord goes on to say, in the continuation of this chapter, that he's also going to bring the children of the people who rebelled against him into the promised land. Moses says, I know that you punish the sins on the children. And God says, well, not this time. This time, I will let the people who told me they don't want to go in, I'll let them not go in but I'll bring their kids in. 
That was a lot. But I think it's a wildly realistic story. I think it's wildly realistic in how kind of twisted and dark the plot line is. Here's God saying, I've given you everything you need. I've had this covenant with you for forever. I have offered you a land that the spies say is exceedingly good. In Genesis 1, as you know, God says that on the seventh day he looks at creation and it is very good. The Hebrew is tov ma'ot. This is tov ma'ot ma'ot. The Hebrew says it is very, very good. It is the best possible real estate. God has removed the covering of the giants who live there. He says all you've got to do is reach out, walk in, and take it. He's got a perfect track record. He's got the perfect offer on the table, and they get scared. They say, what about our wives and with our kids? And Now, for us, this sounds like a deeply understandable reason. But what biblical scholars note about this passage is that the refusal to go into the land is the refusal of the covenant God has made with them wholesale. Everything has been building to this point. He has offered them a land where their wives and children will flourish, and they say, you're going to kill us when we get in there. As though God is the kind of God who brings, that all that way, all, brings you all this way only to watch you live an incredible tragedy. Recently, I was planning on going abroad for a year in Southeast Asia, and I was getting continually more nervous about it. Nervous enough that I might have pumped the brakes on some paperwork that I was supposed to do. Here he comes. I'm so sorry. I totally would have gone. Like, if you told me, I would have done it. Anyway. I really didn't. Wow. Okay. Anyway. And um, so I'm kind of not going so fast, and I went to pray about it for a day, and I was drawn to this passage. It happened to be the daily office in the ecumenical lectionary for the church worldwide, and the sense that I got in reading this was God going, do you really think that I've called you for a year abroad to kill you? And I said, yeah, kind of. <laughs> and God said, why? And I was like, I don't know but I am scared for myself. And God says, do you think I'm not scared for you? And I go, no, 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 I think you care. He goes, do you, do you think it's going to be horrible? I was like, well, I've never been there. God was like, fair point. But do you think that I would set up a whole future and bring you through a whole past all of a sudden just to kill you in the present? I've thought that. I would bet that you've thought that. And when we look at the failures of our past, the times that we've let that kind of thinking knock us down, if you were to tell me in those moments to rise up, I would get a little angry, maybe a little more than angry. So the author of Hebrews brings us back here to this people who become so suspicious of God, they will sell the entire covenant despite a past of faithfulness and a future of hope. I wonder if some of us are there. If we're maybe at a moment where we feel like God could be calling us to something. And if you told any of your friends, you would say that God's been very good to me. I'm very grateful. It's all been wonderful. But when you look at the future, you are scared of the next step in the present where God's going to whack you. And so the Israelites don't go in. Their kids get to go in, but they have to go wandering. What are we going to do with that? What's fascinating is that the author of Hebrews actually thinks that this story is a kind of incomplete prophecy 
that has been waiting for Jesus. So with that story in mind, grab your pinky and go back to Hebrews 4. And let's see what the author of Hebrews thinks Christians do with this story. Hebrews 4, verse 8, sets up the idea that the story God has written here is not actually just supposed to be for them, but it's for us. It's this kind of shadow story that's meant to illuminate our own situation. And so he says, if Joshua had given them rest, if they had actually gone into the promised land, God would never have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's us. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did. It's a reference to Genesis 1. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest... Jesus, Jesus who's greater than Moses, we have a greater rest that we're moving towards with a greater leader. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is able to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, but he didn't sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to resent the people in matters related to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. The author of Hebrews thinks that the amazing thing about Jesus isn't, that, isn't just that he is great and powerful, but that he's great and powerful and he knows. He understands. He's been through it. He knows what it's like to be on the edge of the promised land and to be terrified because in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he's crucified, he asks if there is any other way. Jesus knows now, I know this is kind of like the kid in Sunday school, where the Sunday school teacher goes, what's gray and furry and has big ears? And he goes, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but it's Sunday school, so it's got to be Jesus. <laughs> I know the Jesus answer is often the trick card, but here it is. The author of Hebrews is trying to lead us into the recognition that when we have failed to rise up, when we are scaled that, that, that scared that the next challenge to rise up is going to be a failure, Jesus is right next to you. He's directly where you are. He loves you too much to let you stay there, but he also loves you too much to be far away. He loves you enough to let you lay down for a while, but also loves you enough to hope that you'll get up. Jesus knows what it's like. He's in, he's in that moment, the moment that church folk think God is not. When it's your time to decide, God has told you what to do, and now you must... God's also there. I don't know where God is, where I'm laying on the ground next to a Fork Union Military Academy student, 
where I'm embarrassed and terrified and I don't know what's going on and if the coach comes over and says, get up, I would probably try to slap him in the face. But maybe Jesus is also on the ground with me, with his legs all tied up, kind of embarrassed but thinking it's a little bit funny. Like, maybe he's there. Jesus is the model of transformation for Christians. I say that because when other people enter my life and they know I'm on the ground and they want me to rise up, they kind of give me that challenge or they say, well, I'll just stay here with you. They often try to fix it. They often try and say the right thing. They often try to, and in the weirdest sort of way, and I bet you have been here, it's like somebody kind of sticks this hand in the middle of your identity and just starts, like it's, it's incredibly graceless. Now, now some people, have, we've all had that moment where somebody was exactly where we needed them to be. But here's the funny thing about what it means for Jesus to fix it. If the resurrection is the fix-it of his crucifixion, it's a model of fixing that I have never seen anywhere else. He doesn't cover it. He doesn't come back from the dead as the same guy, but he also doesn't come back from the dead as a different guy. The resurrected Jesus still has his wounds. The resurrected Jesus knows what it means to carry the wounds of the past with us even as we're transformed in God's glory. It's a trick, it's a model, it's an event that doesn't have any other parallel. Somebody who is the same and yet different, having overcome all the failures and the hardships and sorrows of the death that reigns over this world. So if you're here this morning and you feel like you're kind of in that moment where failure might be just on the horizon or you've sat through this sermon series and you've been anxious because every other time you tried to rise up, you fell straight down, I would just like to let you know two things. Jesus knows he's with you. He really is. Right in that moment, that's maybe Jesus' favorite moment because he knows that's where he can find a real you. And I promise you, when he starts to work on you, when he starts to fix it, it's not going to be a Band-Aid. It's not going to be a punch to try and make you get up. It's not going to be a slap and a challenge. It's going to be this incredible trick that only he can do where he affirms you for who you are and then gets you where you want to be. Somehow, without leaving us in the dust, he can make the dreams of our hearts the work of our hands. I don't know how he does it. Maybe it's a God thing, but I've seen it in my own life and the lives of others. So if you're there this morning, just know that. I'd like to turn now, as the music slowly starts to rise, to an exercise that might be a little uncomfortable for some of us. I'd like to open the front for prayer, so if you're on the prayer team, grab a name tag, come on down. I'd like to open the front for prayer where if you feel like there's a place where you want to see Jesus show up, you can come down and have somebody pray with you. Now, I also know that the distance between there and here is absolutely terrifying. So if you'd actually like to just say that prayer with the people you came with, that's cool too. But I'm going to hold you hostage in Jesus' presence for like a song so that you have the opportunity to come down and pray about it if you want to pray about it or sit there and pray about it if you want to pray about it. Because the point is, what I say is never going to fix what's going on. 
but the presence of Jesus can. It really can.